Hey, everyone. Hi. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Alice. Hey, Reza- now. Greg, what are you doing here? Hey, what do you mean? What I- Allison, where do you, you come from, Greg? I came from the world of childish, and I just want to make sure that your listeners know that you're just as wonderful on the, on the other podcast you do. What if they don't have kids? Don't need them. You don't need them. A lot of our listeners actually tell us they don't have kids. We talk about sex. We talk about all sorts of dirty stuff, but also parenting stuff. Yeah, so. Check out Childish, new episodes every Wednesday, wherever you listen to podcasts. Hey, everyone. Hi. Hello. Welcome to another episode of Allison Rosen is your new best friend. I'm very excited to have on the show today actor, writer, producer, Melissa Gilbert. She starred as Laura Ingalls Wilder on Little House on the Prairie from 1974 to 1984. During the show's run, she appeared in The Diary of Anne Frank and The Miracle Worker, which I must have watched 800 times. She went on to do voice work and musical theater. She received a star on the Hollywood Walk of Fame, was president of the Screen Actors Guild for four years, and competed on season 14 of Dancing with the Stars. She's written a memoir, a children's book, a cookbook, and even run for Congress. Now she has a production company with her husband, Timothy Busfield and Jeff Daniels, and they've released their first film, Guest Artist. Hello, welcome. Hi. Boy, hearing all of that makes me very tired. (laughs) (laughs) Are you tired? (laughs) No, actually, no. I have infinite amount, not infinite, but I have a lot of energy. So I don't, it takes a lot to get me (laughs) tie-tie. So Guest Artist, did I get that right? Is that the first film that you guys have released? It is. It's our first film together since we formed our company, Grand River Productions. Uh, Tim and I were living in Michigan, and uh, Tim is from Michigan, and Jeff is a Michigander, and they had been friends since youth in New York. They met when they were kids and had Michigan in common, and we're in the same theater company in New York City. And so... um, Jeff came over one day and we sat down and we were talking and talking about how uh, frustrating the film and television industry could be and, and how we wanted to make our own content and how, you know, Tim and I had been doing these little sort of independent short films and little things for YouTube and stuff and discovered that there was a way to do this without pushing a boulder up a hill and having a giant crew and a huge inflated budget. <laughs> and so Jeff was really interested in that and said, well, why don't we let's look at something we can do. And he's a a incredibly prolific playwright. And so we went to his catalog and he chose to do Jeff to do guest artist first. And then he wrote it into a screenplay and I raised the money and Tim directed and produced. We produced together. Jeff starred. Uh, It was a real family affair. Mm -hmm. And now it's out and it's, you know, been such a, an incredibly um, interesting experience getting this thing done and out there. And especially now Releasing a movie during a global pandemic is, you know, not optimal, but there's not a lot of competition. So, right, right. It's, if it weren't the pandemic, how would things be different in terms of what you'd go through in releasing the movie? 
Well, it would have been in more theaters. It would have had more time to, you know, build audience appreciation. We would have been able to red carpet and have premieres in different cities and do press junkets and all of that. So this really did kind of, it put a kibosh on all of that. So we had to, you know, it, it, it's very apropos, though, that this company that decided to do things in a new-ish way, our way, would have to then also release the film. And our our distributor, um, Indican, has been fantastic through all of this. And, um, you know, it's, it's, it's a struggle. And yet at the same time, now everybody can just watch it in their homes if they want to. Mm-hmm. Which I don't mind. It's a small film. It's beautiful on the big screen, but it's also beautiful on a television. Do you feel like you have a personal relationship with the story? Um, I do. I, I have – my relationship with the story is, is different um, – simply because I, in this particular instance, in our company, we all wear a bunch of different hats and do a bunch of different things, depending upon what project we're working on. One of us will write, one of us will direct, one of us will act, we'll all produce. It, it, it kind of goes back and forth. Mm-hmm. So on this one, I was very much, um, uh, my hat was, was, was primarily being a producer. So I had to come at it in a very analytical way and, and raising the money for it and then finding our production offices, getting that up and running, staffing. I did, you know, location scouting, secured the locations or locate. There really is only one major mm-hmm. central location. And it, then the action takes place primarily in a, a train depot. That is a real train station, right? It is. It's a train station in Jeff's hometown in Michigan where he lives. So he was 20 minutes from work. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we were getting everything up and running. And Tim and I were, at that time, we had moved to New York City. And um, or we were back and forth between the two. And while we were in New York City for one of our chunky stays, I booked a, an off-Broadway play. And so I called the guys, got them on the phone and said, what do I do? And they said, we got this, go do the play. So I wasn't on the set when they were shooting. Mm. Then I got involved again in post-production and was at Tim's side through the entire editing process and, and having a lot of input in that and the scoring. Uh, our composer is Jeff's son, Ben. I especially uh, loved, um, I actually went, so I, I watched it last night and then I really loved the song the the closing credits song at the very end and so and I knew it was Ben Daniels and then you know I went and looked it up and I I ended up finding a bunch of uh like wedding pictures of Ben and his wife on the knot that wedding website Yes. So I feel intimately acquainted with the musicians <laughs> of the, <laughs> of the movie That's so great and then we had his son Jeff's son Luke was a, a camera operator worked in the sound department. Um, my stepson and Tim's son, Willie Busfield, was our director of photography. He's a really talented, um, much sought-after fashion uh, DP in New York City. And my son, Michael, my youngest, Boxleitner, Michael Boxleitner, was Jeff's stand-in. So it really was a family affair for us. Oh, that's nice. Yeah. What was yeah. the off-Broadway play you did? Um, I first... It, it was the second one I did. It was um, for with the Irish rep. It was the dead 1904. It was an immersive, interactive uh, telling of James Joyce's The Dead. Mm-hmm. And I did that two years in a row, right around Christmas time. And it was in the Irish American Historical Society townhouse on Fifth Avenue. And the guests would come in and we serve dinner and there's live music and we dance with them. And then we move the play from room to room and they follow. And oh, they're, wow. They're in it with us. 
So um, it was it was a, an amazing experience, and I don't even I can't even I've been isolated now <laughs> for as we all have for these many months. The thought of doing a play, let alone an immersive play with food and an audience, is like the I'm so lucky I got to do that when I did because I don't think we'll see stuff like that for a very long time, if ever. Who knows? Right. You right now you're in upstate New York, right? Yes. And yes. I know that you have chickens and vegetables. Yes. We Tell do. me about the chickens because I have a fantasy. I had chickens when I was a little kid and I have a fan. I'm in Burbank now, which I don't, it's not exactly like chicken land, but I have a fantasy of having my own egg laying chickens. We have, um, for my birthday this year, we, we knew we were going to get chickens and we knew we were going to get a coop and eventually, you know, do all of these things. And then the virus hit and it seemed more important than ever to try and be a, a remotely self-reliant if possible because we didn't know where we still don't know where all of this is headed. Mm-hmm. What we hadn't anticipated was that so much of this would be DIY. So we built the coop, we built the uh, chicken run, we built the bear fence, the electric fence that goes around the chicken run because we have bears and raccoons and hawks and eagles up here, um, and bobcats and coyotes and every snakes, you name it. And then we built the garden, we built the raised beds, we uh, built the fence around that, the deer fence, and then put in the special sensor sprinklers that go off if anything climbs in. But we did it all with this like hardware cloth, which is, um, it's like mesh, like really nasty metally mesh on the bottom of everything, and then built from there. So it, it was arduous, but so rewarding. And so my birthday got my chickens. And we went, we started doing research into finding chicks and we were not the only people in America to have this idea. Yes. I heard there was like a run on chicks. You could not get them. Couldn't get chicks. <clears throat> we finally found a chicken farm in New Jersey, about an hour and a half away. And they offered a straight run, which is a not sexed mm-hmm. run of these chickens. And the breed is called <laughs> death layers. I like to think they're a biker gang. <laughs> That's very tough for, for tiny, cute little chicks. <laughs> it is. And the reason they're called death layers is that most chickens go through menopause a mm. couple of years or, or a year before they pass. And these don't. They lay eggs until they die. Until... So we got... Still a very morose name. Yes. Nasty. You could also call, have called them life layers, although that sounds like weirdly religious, but... Lifelong layers? I don't know. <laughs> um, yeah, that is weird. Um and so we brought them home, all the eight of them, and a few months later, we noticed that we had five roosters and oh, wow. two hens. <laughs> so this last, uh, about three weeks ago, the guy who sold us those chickens let us come in exchange, and he gave us two pullets, which are hens that aren't laying it, but aren't babies. Mm-hmm. So they were the same age as the, as the death layers. We kept one rooster and two death layers. Uh, Dr. Biggie Fauci <laughs> and Henny and Penny are the death layer girls. And then we got a black French Moran, you know, with the feathery feet. Oh yeah. Her name is Coco and they gave us a cream leg bar. She's all white. So her name is cotton. And then we got four, hen chicks so we have four babies in the kitchen right now all and their breed is they're called 55 flowery hens and they're just they have the funniest little personalities we're having the best time with these guys and so i figure 
the first few hens will probably start laying in September. And the little babies will be a couple months behind that. But in the meantime, the garden's flourishing. We have tomatoes, uh, cucumbers, green beans. I made pickles yesterday. <laughs> like I'm living little house on the prairie here. <laughs> um, uh, green peppers, red bell peppers, uh, red onions, celery, uh, zinnias, strawberries, watermelons, um, and all kinds of herbs. And I thought, you know, I, I enjoyed fresh vegetables and fruits. I've never tasted anything like the stuff that's growing in our garden ever. How it's- are your how are your spirits during all this? Because hearing all that, I'm like, oh, wow, you are you are really making the most of it. I feel like all I'm doing is just the bare minimum. I, you know, in the beginning, when we first came up here on March 13th, um, I, f- it was still really cold and snowy. It didn't, uh, this, this, the last snow, I think was mid, mid May, end of May. So it was really, really cold still in March. So we just kind of hunkered in, which I'm incredibly good at. Mm-hmm. I think I've discovered that for all this energy and all these things I do in my life, I'm in inherently kind of a lazy person. So <laughs> at first it was just about carbs and movies. Mm-hmm. And just enjoying our comfort company together, the two of us, and having weekly Zoom calls with the kids, and you know, it 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 just it felt very still and peaceful. And then as the seasons changed, we just started to get so active with this stuff. I have, you know, I worry about what will be, and I worry about my kids and grandkids, and I don't know. None of us knows what the future holds with any of this stuff. But on the other side of that, I'm really enjoying having this kind of quiet, peaceful time with Tim, with my husband. And, you know, we, our place is so far removed that we have internet, but it's satellite. So we Mm. can't stream. So until we got this office that's in the little tiny town near us and got high speed internet, I did not, I hadn't seen Tiger King or I don't, I read about this stuff, but I don't know what any of it means. And so now we're sort of back in the land of the living and, and working more and he's getting ready to go start shooting his series on ABC. And so, um, uh, we're getting back to life, but I'm not ready to leave here yet. And you, where do you normally live? So we have an apartment in New York city. Um, our little pied in New York City. And then we've had this place up in the Catskills for a couple of years now. And so we just come up here kind of to get away or come up almost every weekend year round. And um, we converted this little hunting cabin into a year round place. We put in heat, we gutted it, we put on a new roof, we changed the kitchen, made a new bathroom, put in all new plumbing, insulated so that it'd be more comfortable. Not anticipating living here full time, and now we have, we still have the apartment in the city, but we're just not there. Uh, mm-hmm. We went back to pick up the youngest kid who lives in New York City too, to get him out of there for a while. We have, we put an RV on the property for our quarantining friends so they can come up and stay there for two weeks. That's until smart. Yeah. Yeah. And it also gave us an extra couple of bathrooms, which is key since in our cabin, the bathroom is just off the kitchen. Mm-hmm. not really conducive to privacy and food and um, <laughs> and so um, 
now we've, you know, we've been working so much on the house and at the house. I, I mean, we went back to the city for that. We went back to the city for a doctor's appointment. I have a dentist appointment in September, but other than that, I, unless Tim starts filming in New York city, there's no reason for us to, to be there. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, uh, I have a a husband and I have a three-year-old and a one-year-old and we're in, you know, LA area for, for work theoretically, but this whole pandemic has made me realize like there's right now, there's not really any reason we need to be here. I have all sorts of friends who were in New York or in LA and who've escaped to various other places where they have more land and they're more in touch with nature. And I don't, I don't actually see us doing that, but I, I see the appeal of doing that. Yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, because we're in, we're in a, a, a really wonderful position now, our kids are all grown, they're all living on their own. So they're not, we don't have little ones at home. I don't know what I would do. Mm-hmm. Um, I really don't more power to you with a three year old <laughs> and a one year old in a quarantine, you know, and during a pandemic without being able to go to the normal places and mm-hmm. do the normal activities. I, you know, parents, in my opinion, are saints anyway, by and large, especially stay home parents. But and now everyone's a stay home parent. Right. And I don't know how I would have handled it. Yeah, it's um. They, well, thank you. It's it's tough. We are getting through. Um, speaking of of being a little kid, uh, you started acting super duper young. How old were you when you started? I uh, my first job was a, a commercial I did when I was two. So I, w- I was really really little. And then my first episodic television, I think I was around six when mm-hmm. I did Gunsmoke. And then um, a lot of different commercials and episodes of stuff here and there. And then Little House when I was nine. So you never actively chose it. Did you feel like you had chosen it? <laughs> no. I mean, I don't think, you know, I, too, <laughs> marching into my parents and said, I want to be an actor now. But it was abundantly clear to my, my family's all in the entertainment industry anyway. Mm-hmm. It was, it was made very clear to them that that's where I was headed. You know, when, when, when I was about two-ish, my father, who was a, a really fantastic stand-up comic, dancer, actor, musician, writer, uh, we were doing, he was doing a date. He was playing, I don't know, doing his comedy act in Hawaii. And they did this family fashion show with celebrities and their kids. And my dad was in it and I was asked to be in it too. And so we were, and my mom, and we were meant to walk down this ramp and turn around and come back behind a curtain. And so we did. And they went back behind the curtain. My mom and dad were talking and they heard the audience applauding and cheering and they turned around and I was gone. I was down center stage, <laughs> blowing kisses and dancing and taking bows. And that's when they went, okay, all righty, we're in trouble. And luckily as I grew and aged, I really I don't remember not loving what I did. It was always a joyful experience for me. I was very lucky to be working with some really extraordinary people who um, were very mindful of allowing me to remain a child, but then also respecting me as a peer. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I grew up on a set that embraced kids being kids. When we were outside, we had outside activities to do when we weren't shooting and school was really important. Um, And I just... I've always loved my job so much so that it oftentimes doesn't even feel like a job. Have you ever gone to real school? Oh yeah. Um, I, I, I went to a private school in LA. I went to the Buckley school. Okay. And um, 
it, that school goes nursery through 12th. And so I started in the, uh, when it, in the 60s when it was on Doheny still. And that's the school that I went to all the way through high school graduation. And then when I was working, I would correspond my work with the school. But oftentimes during our hiatus on Little House on the Prairie, I wasn't working. And so I would go back to regular school. And I still mm-hmm. have friends from my class. What was that transition like? Going back from work to school? Mm-hmm. And then going back to work? It was weird for me. Um, it was a little bit it was a little bit awkward, but also one of the things that was really uh, hard about it was, you know, my, my teeth were legendarily, <laughs> they were Bucky, 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 Bucky Beaver. And so they didn't have braces or retainers or anything in the 1800s. So I would have like super braces in between on hiatus. So I, oh. had, a, well, I had a neck gear and that I just, remember those. and I was already kind of dorky. And I was not like the rest of the kids because I was on television. So I had my little group of friends, but I certainly wasn't, I was nowhere near a popular girl in school. And, you know, the, the neck gear did not help. <laughs> did you wish you were popular? At the time I did. I Now, you know, I, I look back at my entire life and all of the the wonderful, terrific times and all of the difficult times, but I, I wouldn't change any of it because right now is really good, even with everything going on around us. So when you say super braces, was it like they were trying to do what would normally take X amount of months in a shorter? So that just sounds so painful. It hurt. It did hurt, but it, it had to happen. So, yeah. and then I had a lot of stuff behind my teeth. Like I had a wire underneath my bottom teeth and I had, I had brackets on the back teeth and I still had the neck gear, even when the braces came off and, it, and then they would go back on again. It was, it was uh, not pleasant, but well worth it because <laughs> had I had to go through life with the teeth that I had at that time, it would not be pretty right now. Now you have perfect teeth. I do. There's thousands of dollars in this face. Right <laughs> um. I know that you have talked about feeling like you got to a certain point and there was was suddenly pressure put on the way you looked. Yes. Um, and, and you have also, in 2018, you announced that you are going to go natural. Yeah. Where are you with all of, with all of that now? Like, do you, did, do you feel like you had body dysmorphia for a time? I don't think, I don't know that I had necessarily body dysmorphia. I had a lot of pressure from uh, the industry that I was in to look a certain way and be a certain way. Um, you know, there's, there's, there's a lot of pressure in our business and there's a lot of pressure outside of our business. I, I often point out, you know, if you drive on any kind of long distance drive, as you come into a big city, you see McDonald's, Taco Bell, freeze the fat, facelift, mm-hmm. uh, Wendy's, liposuction and it's just it's mind-boggling to me there's so many mixed messages yeah and I decided you know having gone through trying to fit into everyone's mold of what I should look like I, I, I aside from the the health stuff especially with the breast implants I just wanted that stuff out and once those came out the implants came out permanently then um the next step was no Botox no fillers no nothing and now I've gone, so I've stopped coloring my hair completely. I'm letting it go gray. And, na- and 
actually all of this works really well considering where we're at. If I had to keep maintaining all of that stuff from home by myself, I would be out of my mind. And I feel really, I feel good. I feel healthy. Um, and I feel strong for someone my age. And I, you know, I look in the mirror and go, okay, great. Great. What Was there any um, pushback from your representation or from anyone when you decided to you know, get the implants out and to stop getting Botox or filler or anything like that? No, I got nothing but support from them. Nothing but support. And I, you know, I grew up in a very glamorous family. My, my mom's side, the women on, the, on that side of the family are, are like the Gabors. It's insane what these people look like. And my sister sort of blazed, my little sister Sarah sort of blazed the no makeup, I'm not going that way trail mm. for me. And, you know, there were a couple of times in my in my late twenties, early thirties, where I would show up at family functions with the baby, my son, Dakota, who was very little at the time and no makeup. And my grandmother would say, you're so beautiful. How come you're not wearing makeup? (laughs) (laughs) Wait, I don't, that doesn't make sense, but okay. (laughs) You need rouge. Uh, Um, you have been open about having had a nose job. Um, oh, yeah. I'm wondering, after you got the nose job and then later after you got the breast implants, how did you feel after after those surgeries? I don't mean physically. I mean, like, the results of them. How did it make you feel? Um, the nose was a big deal. Um, I felt I felt more confident, I think, for sure. Um I've been, you know, I've been makeup people had been shadowing and contouring my nose for years. And it just, I I hated having all that stuff on my face. So once I got that done and I was not shy about it, I ever, all my friends knew I'm going to go get my nose done. I'm getting my Mm -hmm. nose done. I even went out, I I even showed up at a a party at the Playboy Mansion with the bandage on. (laughs) I don't care. I'm an open book that way. There's no secret to it. Um, after I got my, my implants in initially, I felt pretty great. Um, I had, it was in between babies after the first baby nursed for a really long time and I was really insecure and I did feel better. But then as time went on, I just kept looking at this body going, whose body is this? This is Mm. not what my body's meant to look like. And the strangest thing happened when I finally had the implants removed, I'd been carrying a little weight around with me. Um, since I'd moved to Michigan and discovered how to make a tater tot hot dish. <laughs> as soon as those implants came out, I lost like 15 pounds. Just, it just fell off. It's like my body went, this is what you are. You're more athletic. You're not voluptuous. Go be this person, please. Oh, that's so interesting. Yeah, it was weird. It was unexpected. And it was 50 and it wasn't, was some of that the weight of the implants or just no, actually? Much. <laughs> I don't know how they work. For all I know, they're very heavy. Because <laughs> that makes sense that they probably wouldn't. <laughs> um, what was your relationship with your parents like? Um, my relationship with my parents was, was you know, it, it, was, it was good. My, when my parents were together, my parents divorced, I think, when I was about six. But my relationship with my dad... Um, was terrific. He was a really wonderful, fun, fair, very fair, reasonable father. 
And um, he was very much a part of my life, even after my parents got divorced and after my mother remarried. My dad was still always around until he died when I was 11. And that was mind-bogglingly devastating. It's, it, it shifts. Losing a dad at that age just shifts everything. Mm-hmm. It's just there's 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 not even really words to describe it. My relationship with my mother um, has over the course of the years, you know, it can be prickly at times. Mothers and daughters are, gosh, this is why I'm so grateful I have four sons. Um, <laughs> uh, you know, we we've had our moments and our disagreements. And at the end of the day now, here we are where we are during this pandemic. And even if I was in Los Angeles, I still couldn't go see her and hug her. And I want to more than ever. And I miss her because we've reached this really wonderful, peaceful place where we're not butting heads. And I don't feel I, you know, in, in my family, these skeletons in the familial closet will come popping out. And it would always go back to my mother having kept the stuff, very important facts of my life from me. And my reaction is, has always been, you know, initially just hurt and anger mm-hmm. and rightly so. So now here we are this many years later and a lot of that, so much of that has softened. And now I realize that that was all just her way of doing things and it's not my way of doing things. And um, I'm grateful for what I learned from that so that I don't pass it on to my kids. And I'm grateful that I've been in a position and had a great therapist for a really long time who helped me to find a way to not repeat a lot of that stuff. Can I ask what kind of things she kept from you? Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, Well, the reality of my father's passing when, when I was 11, my brother, Jonathan was eight. Uh, Our father had a stroke uh, a year before he died. And so when he died, we were told that he'd had another stroke in his sleep and died in his sleep. Mm. And then when I was in my, I think about 45, um, I was on the phone with my sister who was not my father's daughter. She's my mom and my stepdad's daughter. And my memoir was about to come out and everybody was like, my mom hated it. And my sister was worried. And she called me on the phone and she said, I'm really scared about this, that it's going to cause a big rift in the family. And, you know, you're telling all of these truths. And she, she said, and, and I have to tell you something. And I said, what do you have to tell me? And she said, she told me that when her, fa- her father had died about five years before, she said, on his deathbed, he confessed something to me about your dad. And I said, well, what is it? And she started to cry. And I said, honey, what is it? She said, Melissa, your father shot himself. Oh, my God. And, yeah, and I, 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 they were screaming. Yeah. Um, I scared the crap out of my youngest, Michael, who was sitting next to me, and my husband, Bruce, at the time, my husband at the time, Bruce. Um, And I, it was, it was like, it was like, not having the rug pulled out from under me, but having the entire planet pulled out from under me. And when I confronted my mother and said, how could you not have told me? And I was, and she just kept coming back at me with, well, and well, and well. And I said, well, wait, 
She said, you were 11. I said, yeah, but then I was 18 and I was 20 and I was 30 and I played a woman who committed suicide and you sat next to me in the movie and you didn't lean over and go, by the way, you know, every opportunity. And she was so not open to what I was experiencing emotionally. And she actually said to me on the phone, look, Melissa, I can't do this. Frankly, I just forgot. (laughs) And and I couldn't, (laughs) couldn't get any straight answers from anyone. And everyone who had been there my stepdad at the time, Harold, was dead. My grandmother, who was there, had dementia. And my mom kept it. There's literally nobody in the family knew. So I, and nobody could give me any information. So I hired PIs. And I asked them to get my father's death certificate and the coroner's report, but not with any photographs. Because for me, the most important thing, even if it's painful, is to live in truth as much and as often as possible. Mm -hmm. It's much less unsettling. And so I got the report and my father, after his first stroke had been under the care of the VA and in uncontrollable pain and nobody was doing anything to help him. And it had been a year and he, and he couldn't work. He couldn't perform, which was his second greatest love aside from us kids. And he kept saying he was going to kill himself. He was going to kill himself. He was going to kill himself. And he got a gun And he did. And when they did the toxicology report, there was nothing in his body but Tylenol. So nobody did anything. Mm -hmm. And having the knowledge of what he had gone through and and understanding it um, helped me a lot in healing from that. But it was a very, very hard couple of years after that. And I didn't, I don't think I spoke to my mom. We we really got into it. I didn't speak to her for a year. And then you know, gradually things started to get better. And then a few years ago, I found out that my father had two daughters before me from two different wives. One I knew about, one I had no idea about that my mom knew about. And then there was all this family subterfuge that kind of separated me from them. And I blew Mm -hmm. up at her again about that. And just tell me the truth. I can handle anything just as long as there's truth. So now that's all done. And um, these are now the facts of my life. So what am I going to do with them? Carry resentment forever. And, you know, I, all these things were done for a multitude of reasons, but the, the core of that for my mother was to protect me from any kind of her harm. It may not have been the right way to do it, but it was her way to do it. And I appreciate that. And then I imagine probably shame about not having told you the truth and not knowing how to undo it. Yeah. And I have a big mouth, you know, I, and I, I don't have a necessarily short fuse, but when the, when I'm lied to, then that that's a real trigger. That's a problem for me. Um, I'm relating intensely to all of that because I also feel the most important thing is the truth and living in the truth. And some of my greatest pain is, feeling gaslit or feeling like my reality is not being validated. Um, Where do you think that desire to live in the truth comes from for you? I think it comes from this sort of inherent as a kid, knowing that something's not right. When my father died, um, we were told he died. And then there was absolutely no discussion of it. The decision was made that we were not to go to the funeral 
that we were not to go see his things or have any of his things or choose what we wanted to take of his. It was just sort of this, it'll be better for them if they don't feel. And, you know, Mm -hmm. part of that, you know, I think in my head is, well, maybe because you didn't, you didn't want to be upset watching me be upset, Mm -hmm. but that's not going to help me at all right now. Um, So I, you know, I think it's a real mistake to underestimate people's instincts. And instinctively, I knew something was wrong. Yeah. Um, when when did you grieve your father? It, if you weren't really allowed to, then I <laughs> a lot of the um, a lot of the a lot of the weeping. Um, on Little House on the Prairie after season two was Mm. grief coming out in at least a constructive way. But I did not, I didn't, I didn't really know how to process grief really well because, and then, and then years, years and years later, my grandfather um, was dying and my mother's father and it was such a different experience. Like we were all there. We were with him for the weeks before and the hours before. And there was this wonderful funeral and the family was kind of together. And I started having these terrible anxiety attacks and panic attacks Mm -hmm. because this was so different from any other grieving experience I'd ever watched my family go through. And I couldn't understand why him, not my dad, what, why, you know, it, it, it really knocked me for a loop. Um, and um, it, it's 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 amazing the the kind of you know I call it yard trauma that we get from childhood that we carry with us. Well, I'll tell you one of the one of the results of not being able to grieve is I think I may have let my kids over grieve. Like mm. had a pet mouse that died, and we had a funeral for the mouse, and we talked about the mouse, and how do we feel about the mouse? And it was a mouse. Um, uh, worms or if there's a dead bug and the kids were, I didn't, I just, I wanted to make sure that they could live with their feelings and have mm-hmm. their feelings. Um, I think they'll tell you, I let them overfeel a bit. They feel that way. I don't know. I don't know. I would love to be a fly on the wall in their therapy sessions to hear what I did wrong. They, you know, they, I, I have yet for them to, Aside from the adolescent, you work too much stuff that I got. Mm-hmm. Now they're past it. I don't hear anything, you know, yeah. I, I, I don't know. Maybe it's better that I don't. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny when you try so hard to be a really good parent, but you also know that your kids are going to be in therapy complaining about you one day anyway. Yeah, of course. My mother gave me too many choices. She told me I could do anything. And now I <laughs> um, you were adopted, right? Yes. Did you always know that? I always knew I was adopted. Um, again, the 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 there was a fairy tale about you know my adoption story that my um, my father was what was what did she tell me? My father was gosh I can't like a I don't even remember what she said. My my mother was a ballerina, and my father was I don't know something equally as romantic. And they just realized that they were too young to have a child and they put me up for adoption. And the reality was 
that my birth father and birth mother were married to other people and each had three children, mm. fell in love, ran off on a motorcycle trip and conceived me in the middle of the desert, which I think is infinitely much more cool than, yeah. <laughs> than being the daughter of a prima ballerina who just didn't want to give up her stupid career. Uh, <laughs> it, it had so much more meaning. And then they even married after I was born. Oh, wow. So, so they had a love story of their own. And finding out that they had married, did that cause you pain that they had given you up no, for adoption? No, 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 no. I, I have never, I've never felt, I found my birth family, at least the birth father's side. They did ultimately, they separated many, many years later and she passed away in 1980 before I ever, ever searched. And I really had no desire to look until I had my first baby. And I looked at his face and went, oh my God, he looks like me. I thought I looked like my family all this time, but I, it was just mannerisms. This was like physically his eyebrows and his lip and his his forehead. It was bizarre. And so I knew there were other people out there who looked like me and I wanted to find them. But in no way did I want them to take me back or did I want them to replace the family that I had. Um, it was more just curious and, and embracing this I don't, I tell people I don't have a family tree. I have a family shrub. <laughs> um, I read, I don't know if it's true though, but I read that you had at a certain point you had a rift with Michael Landon. Is that right? I wouldn't call it a rift. Um, uh, he growing up, you know, we were all very close. Our families were really close. We, we socialized together, not even off the set. We vacationed together in Hawaii every spring break. Oh, wow. Our parents did New Year's Eve together. I slept over to that house. His daughter, Leslie and Michael, also went to the Buckley School, so we all went to school together. They slept over at my house. We were all a very tight-knit group. So when Michael's marriage broke up, when he split up with my Auntie Lynn, Leslie and Michael's mother, and left her for a stand-in on the Little House set when I had seen the kind of, at 16, you know, see, I saw the hints of this romance and I'd go home and tell my mom, she'd go, you're crazy. He's loves Auntie Lynn. They're never getting divorced. So when that happened, you know, there was the usual, well, now who are we friends with? Mm -hmm. And my mom was really close with Auntie Lynn and I was really close with Mike and Leslie and they were devastated. And so that's where my focus went. And then Mike moved to Malibu with Cindy and then they got married and they had, it was a whole other family. And it was like, that, that's, that's more or less what happened. Mm -hmm. um, it wasn't, you know, a confrontation or a rift or anything. It's just, a, it was more of a drift than a right. rift. Right. Um, but we came back together uh, at Leslie's wedding, which was about, I want to say seven or eight months before Michael passed away and, and certainly before he'd been diagnosed. And so we saw each other. We had a great hug and a really nice chat and, um, and then kept making plans to get together. And then he got sick. And so the plans got pushed and the plans got pushed and the plans got pushed. But I did get to go and spend a day with him. What it turned out to be a week before he passed away. And it was just, it was the same warm, loving relationship that I had known. And I had an opportunity to walk through that grief normally. Like Good. Grief. Yeah. What was being the president of SAG like? Tiring. <laughs> it's, it's very, um, 
it's first of all, it's a it's a volunteer job. There's no salary, mm-hmm. but people assume that there's a salary. So, and then also they don't want the number one SAG cop on their set. So, trying to work while being the president of the Screen Actors Guild was nearly impossible. Was that? I, I imagine that's something that you didn't realize until you were in the position. Yeah, exactly. I also didn't realize how um, how. Uh, divisive the internal political world of Screen Actors Guild was until I had gotten on the board of directors. And so when I started running for president, it, it, it got even worse. And then my election got overturned by one faction in the guild and it, it just got, it got crazy. It was exhausting and um, thankless and um, at the same time, extremely educational and rewarding. I learned so much, not just about our industry and, and that particular union, but about the labor movement in our country. I was on the executive council of the AFL-CIO and I learned so much from all the different unions there and, and was there um, after 9-11 and, you know, dealing with how we put the country back together again and having incredible high level meetings with people I never would have otherwise. And, it was it was an extraordinary time. Um, it was also very frustrating, <laughs> and um, and at times almost impossibly difficult. But uh, I wouldn't trade it for the world because now, when it comes time to negotiate my own deals, I know exactly what I'm doing. What inspired you to run for president? Uh, I thought I could unify the guild a bit more. I really wanted to stop the infighting. I honestly believe that a house divided cannot stand. And I thought we were starting to look very weak because of all of the infighting. And um, I didn't think it was going to put us in a very strong position to negotiate our collective bargaining agreements. And so I felt that it was time for someone to step in who could really, hopefully, change that culture, which I ultimately didn't do. Um, because no one can, and it's still a very divisive union, and it's it's nuts. I'm just so grateful they finally merged, SAG finally merged with AFTRA, and they've merged the health plans, and especially now. And then you ran for Congress. Um, do you think your decision to do that related to having been SAG president? Are those related? I think they are related. I, I've always been um, an activist. Uh, I've always stood up for causes that I believe in and my own set of ideals and oftentimes for candidates that I want to back. Um, I, I have an aptitude for politics and I had worked really hard on the gubernatorial election in Michigan, trying to get Mark Schauer uh, elected and uh, he was running against Rick Snyder. Rick Snyder won and then, you know, Rick Snyder, the, the Flint, the governor who, who uh, poisoned all of the people in Flint, is a really terrible, terrible time. So when the party came to me and asked me if I would be willing to run, you know, we had long internal familial conversations. And Tim and I talked to her blue in the face, but felt, we felt that it was more important for me, that, that it was important for me to try and, and help. Um, and so I threw myself into it 100%. And... It was really difficult. It's it's so it's such a, a strange uh, world, and the 
you know, now we're starting to see it more. We're seeing our leaders and leadership at least be allowed to have uh, personalities and quirks of their own. But still, when I was running, I mean, they were telling me how to dress and what to wear and not to be funny. We know you're funny, but they don't need to know you're funny. And I'm like, that, but that's why. There's this mold. I, I called this person that I, when I left the house, I would call myself the candidate. When I come home, mm-hmm. I just be Melissa. <laughs> I had to put on the suit, literally the suit. Mm-hmm. I, 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 we were having a, a fundraiser in a beer hall. And I was, I put on jeans and my campaign manager said, you're, you're not wearing jeans, are you? <laughs> yeah, it's a beer place in Detroit. No, you can't wear jeans. The whatever the head of the DCCC is coming, and the <laughs> emphasis, the the real frustration for me, was the emphasis on fundraising. You can't get any of the work done because you're constantly having to raise money, and then every two years in Congress, it's it's crazy making. Mm-hmm. And they set these these um, goals for you that you have to meet every quarter, and if you don't, you get less support from the party and from the the Democratic Congressional Campaign Committee, the DCCC. Same thing happens on the Republican side, and it it has nothing to do with leadership or ideals or beliefs or being a, a for the people or by the people. It's by the pocketbook, and until that changes, the culture of politics will not change. And how do you do the fundraising? Is that like going to events and is that making promises or what is it? Call time. It's getting lists of phone numbers and sitting for several hours a day and just calling people and asking for money. Something I absolutely loathe, but I decided to make it um, to challenge myself to, to, to surpass my goals every quarter. And so I would just get on the phone mercilessly and say, you know, I need your help. I blah, 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 you know, and 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 I would sit for hours every day doing call time. It's and are you calling like notable people or just like just all random people from all over the place? Notable people, people that I know from the industry, people I've crossed paths with, other politicians, and then just people in the district. Mm, that sounds. As Democratic donors and people who donate and who donate on the regular, it's it's nuts. I mean, you can get all of these lists. I had this huge list of contacts by the time the thing was over. That sounds exhausting. Yeah, it is. It's tedious. Is what yeah. it is. Um, let's take some questions that listeners sent in on Patreon and Twitter. I'm on Patreon, Patreon.com/slash Allison Rosen. Um, bonus materials, behind the scenes content, all that stuff. And uh, okay, here we go. They send them in, they're wondering how you have been So thanks so much for answering these questions from our fans Whitney C. would like to know What specific items are your go-tos for ultimate physical comfort? What specific items are my go-tos for ultimate physical comfort? Um, my jammies <laughs> And super, super, super soft sheets that are cooling because I'm hot all the time and I'm past menopause, but I've just always been hot anyway. Um, my husband and carbs. <laughs> Do you have a favorite carb? Fried chicken. Uh, 
So, don't, say it. Do you say don't tell your chickens? Yeah, don't tell my chickens. <laughs> Snapchat. Um, Shanna Tindall would like to know. She says, that's so exciting. I think many of us, I think like many of us, I've been a fan for a long time. So that's in response to knowing you were coming on the show. I'd be curious to know how she experienced the balance between try, trying to be true to the time period of the Little House books while also addressing the evolution of cultural attitudes during the show's run, Black and Native American characters, for example, would a show like Little House be as popular today? You know, I um, I've been amazed during this whole coronavirus thing how there's been this wild resurgence of Little House on the Prairie watching, mm-hmm. and what people are now realizing that I don't think they realized before was that when we filmed Little House on the Prairie in the seventies on into the eighties, but in the beginning in the seventies. Our country was just coming out of, we just come out of the Vietnam War. The civil rights movement was uh, at the forefront of everything. All of these vets were coming back addicted to drugs. Um, We were in a horrible recession. There were, you know, gas lines and it was just, it was crazy. And our country was in a bad place. And so a lot of what we were going through as a nation was infused in the stories we were telling. And that's all Michael Landon. He wanted to tell the stories of uh, the the African-American experience and about racism and anti-Semitism and chauvinism and um, the cruelty uh, and the cruel ways with which we have dealt with the Native American peoples. And so those stories and and drug addiction and all of it were all Mm -hmm. interwoven into the show. So, Absolutely. Based on what I'm seeing and hearing now on social media and reading and people keep wanting to interview me about Little House on the Prairie because people are starting to watch it again. People are getting that again. So, yes, I mean, I I don't think we can remake Little House on the Prairie now because it stands for itself and the stories are still the same and the message and lessons are still the same. Uh, Shanna also would like to know what was her favorite role outside of Laura and would she consider running for political office again? Um, Gosh, I've had so many diverse and different kinds of roles over the years. Um, I really loved and, and grew as a person and a performer by leaps and bounds when I played Helen Keller in the miracle worker. That was my first my first foray, foray outside of Little House on the Prairie. And it, it was, and also my first play. We did it as a play before we did the movie. So it was my first time on stage. And that really changed everything for me. Um, uh, and as for running for political office, I think that time has passed for me. <laughs> I'm still very much an activist and very much a loudmouth and very involved um, but I don't think, you know, I think that the fact that the disc in my neck kind of exploded and forced me into having neurosurgery, making me drop out of the race was enough of a hint from whatever power it is up there that this is not the right world for me. I had, did you, was that from Dancing with the Stars that you had an injury? I, I had a neck surgery previously in 2001. I had a, a spinal fusion. And then after the whiplash and injury from Dancing with the Stars, it just started to degrade and degrade the disc below. And so Mm -hmm. I ended up having to have another fusion surgery. And there's 
politics waits for no one. There was no way I was going to be able to stay away from the campaign for six weeks and heal. Yeah. Um, Ulysses Atkins says, Jeff Daniels, he is amazing. Ask Melissa what Jeff was like. Has he talked about Michigan much? I recommend seeing Escanaba in the moonlight. Uh, Jeff is great. He's really uh, wry and funny. He, um, he, Escanaba in the Moonlight is a fantastic play that he wrote. And he also shot an independent feature many, many, many years ago based on it that he directed. Um, and the play is done all over the country all the time. It's been done numerous times at, at my husband's theater in Sacramento. It's a really, really funny play. Um, Jeff is a very, um, he's very, politically conscious and and his beliefs and ideals are all infused into his writing he's a great musician um he's a really really wonderful husband father and grandfather he's a he's a good guy uh amy Friho would like to know if she could visit another era of american history which would she choose um another era of american history hmm I think, golly, I don't know. I I guess something feels kind of fun about the roaring 20s before the crash. After the first pandemic, before the stock market crash, maybe. I don't know. You know what? I can't. I can't, I don't even have the imagination to come up with that answer because I'm, all I can, all I'm hearing in my head is no, now, Mm -hmm. now. Right now. Yeah. Don't go back. Um, Lee Brun says, ask about her sitcom with Rosie O'Donnell, Stand By Your Man. It was great, but w- for whatever reason, never caught on. I don't know why I didn't catch on either. I had the best time working on that show with Rosie and, and Sam McMurray, who's still a friend of ours today, uh, and Rick Hall. Um, it was a f- fantastic time for me. It was, it, you know, it was way outside my comfort zone, but absolutely in my bailiwick because I was raised by all comics and comedy writers. So I was completely content in that world. Um, it, you know, it was in the beginning of Fox as a network. It hadn't existed before then. Before then there was just ABC, NBC, and CBS. So they were trying, still trying to find their way, I think, in their programming. Um, but I work with Rosie again in a heartbeat. She's one of my favorite people. Uh, David Goldstein says, and this is now, these are now questions from Twitter. Does she have pandemic tips? There were multiple little house pandemic episodes. She must've picked up some advice. Yeah. uh, I got a pandemic tip. Wear a mask. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. Uh, and then Stephanie Wilder Taylor would like to know, does she still keep in touch with Allison Angram? Are they still rivals? Allison and I are still really close friends. In fact, we were just on a zoom together for the PBS Television Critics Association Zoom because American Masters is doing a special in December on Laura Ingalls Wilder. So they had the two of us on. We text on the regular. We email all the time. And um, she's great. We were never rivals. We've always been friends. And then lastly, Emily wants to know, how do you feel about Laura Ingram Wilder's name being taken off the Children's Lit Award? You know, her books, Laura, Laura Ingalls Wilder's books will live on regardless of whether her name is on an award or not. And there are, you know, there is some controversy about Laura's um, 
depiction of people of color in the books and Native Americans in the books. But we have to also understand that that's where we were then. Mm -hmm. That's what she grew up with. And her mother, Caroline Ingalls, and it was all based on fear, was terrified of Native Americans and people of color. So that rubbed off on Laura. Laura's daughter, Rose, was a completely different animal. And so, you know, I think we can't, we can't get over cancelly with a lot of mm-hmm. this. We have to remember that there's an evolution here. And we've evolved as a people from who we were in the 1700s, 1800s, and 1900s, early 2000s, to who we are now. And someday people are going to look back on who we are now and go, God, troglodytes, what mm-hmm. are they doing? Cavemen. Um, we've come so far. So it's just another step in the journey. It was so nice talking to you. Thank you so much. Tell people where to find you, plug. Everyone should go check out Guest Artist, but do do your plugs. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Well, let's see. Check out Guest Artist. It's available on demand all over the place uh, on uh, iTunes and Apple TV and uh direct tv i mean just look for it you'll find it and then tim and i have a podcast of our own the gilbert and busfield podcast and we've got a new episode going up soon and we're we're actually in these offices now because we have high-speed internet so we can set up our camera and start shooting things and interacting with our listeners and viewers and putting up videos that we do because we're crazy people um, what else do I have to plug? I was going to ask you about the podcast. Um, it is very, cause you guys were doing some and then you took a break and then you came back. It's very fun. I recommend oh. it's like a very fun, lighthearted, fun list. Like I want you guys to be my friends or my parents. Like it's very <laughs> like two entertainers who are very entertaining, who have a lot of stories being like very real with each other. Oh, thanks. Yeah, we just we just kind of hang out and shoot the shit. And that's 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 how we do it. It depends on what's going on that day. You know, we get we can get a little uh, opinionated when it comes to the political spectrum. But we try and put that aside and be as entertaining as we can and as informative as we can. And right now, our big push and I think it should be everyone's big push. And you're going to hear us if you listen to our podcast, talk about this all the time. Go vote. Mm -hmm. Vote, vote, vote. Get your ballots early. Ask for an absentee ballot and vote, 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 vote. Nothing's more important. Yeah. Um, so where they can go subscribe on Apple Podcasts, but oh, you mentioned yes. videos. Like where would they find that? We don't have a, a, any of that up yet. We're still trying to find our way. So our producer, Josh Kearns, is, we're, we actually have a Zoom meeting with him tomorrow to figure out the logistics of all of that. But you can find us on Apple Podcasts. You can find us on Libsyn. You can find us on, I don't know, we're sort of everywhere. <clears throat> for Gilbert and Busfield and then we'll have messages and information and we'll set up a website. We, you know, we start, we've started out rather small to see how we like it. Now we have a producer, now we're growing. And so now we're going to have to bring in subscribers and try and monetize this. Mm -hmm. Thank you so much. If you like what you're hearing, listeners, subscribe uh, and download, rate, smash that subscribe button, uh, review. I've been doing this podcast for so many years and I still stumble over the order of things to tell you to do. But all the things you can do with the podcast, do that and leave a comment that helps out the show. Five stars. Listen to my other podcast, Childish, that I do with Greg Fitzsimmons. Um, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Allison Rosen. I am on Patreon, patreon.com slash Allison Rosen. And I'm also on Cameo. You're on Cameo too, right? I am. I am on the Cameo and I'm on the Twitter and the Instagram and the Facebook. I have all the socials. So <laughs> go find 
all of us on all the socials. Thank you again. It was wonderful talking to you. Thank you. It was great. I really enjoyed this. Thank you. Me too. Thank you. Stay sane. You too. Listeners, thank you for listening. I love you. Goodbye. Hey, do you know about the Allison Rosen Show? 